From the Mom Broadcast Center, this is Take Two, me Martinez. Vaccine access codes meant for vulnerable populations get hijacked. We'll hear how the loophole got exploited. Plus, why aren't social media sites required to run public service announcements about COVID? Imagine if platforms such as Facebook use their massive reach to spread reliable, life-saving information. We'll imagine that possibility ahead on Take Two. Stay with us. From 89.3 KPCC, this is Take Two. I'm Amy Martinez. Thanks for joining us. Coming up, why Facebook should provide underserved communities with accurate information about why and where to get a COVID-19 vaccine. They are a perfect platform to reach people because currently they're the ones that are spreading the misinformation. That's just ahead. But first to a troubling story that could help explain, at least partly, why Black and Latino Angelinos are not being vaccinated at a rate of their white neighbors. Now, it has to do with some special codes sent via text and email that got in the wrong hands. You see, California recently set up a program to help make sure that the communities hit hardest by the pandemic were getting some priority treatment. The idea was simple, set aside blocks of vaccine appointments for people. But the problem was that some of the codes to access these blocks ended up in the hands of wealthier, often white Californians who've been working from home. For more on what went wrong, we turn to Julia Wick. She is a Metro reporter for the Los Angeles Times. Julia, okay, so let's start out with this uh, vaccine code program. What was the intention behind the program and how did it go wrong? Thank you so much for having me. Um, So the intent was really, really well-intentioned. Equity has been, you know, a real looming issue throughout the vaccination rollout. Governor Newsom has often talked about Uh, framing the rollout through an equity lens, but real stark inequities have emerged on the ground in terms of who's actually getting vaccinated. And so as part of the fight to get vaccines to the people who need them most, the state opened two new mass vaccination sites with the Biden-Harris administration last week. Those are the Oakland Coliseum and Cal State LA sites. And they're actually a first in the nation state-federal partnership for vaccination sites specifically focused on more equitable access to vaccines. And as part of this, to kind of try and get the people who most need vaccines but might struggle with the appointment system, um, which has been pretty chaotic for those who aren't super digital natives, they put aside these blocks of appointments at each site that you could only schedule if you had this kind of special access code. Um, And we don't really know how those access codes got out so widely, but they basically spread like wildfire. And the kind of wild thing is the people who were using them by and large didn't know that they were part of an equity program. They were literally taking that from the most vulnerable Californians. So, Julia, just to make it clear, it's kind of like a, like a concert and some tickets get set aside and only people that have the code to get those set aside tickets would have been able to get them. That, that was the idea, right? Exactly. And yeah. it's actually even more than that. Once you enter, let's say I go on the site, I enter my demographic information. I'm not currently eligible for a vaccine. Yeah. But when I enter my demographic information with the code, I see a, a, a screen that says, congratulations, you're eligible. Now, okay, so you mentioned that some of the people that had the codes that shouldn't have had the codes, um, did they realize that uh, something was amiss? 
no, there were kind of two dueling rumors. In the Bay Area, this spread really widely that there were expiring doses at the Oakland Coliseum and basically do your part, here's the code, go sign up and take one of these doses before they expire. And in LA, the rumor was that this site was doing kind of a pilot program and they needed to test their system and like anyone could come while they were testing it. And unfortunately, neither of these things were true at all. But if someone is, say, like 25 years old and they're, they're making progress on getting the vaccine, shouldn't that set a, like a red flag up in their head? Absolutely. And, you know, I spoke to one guy who who was uh, had an appointment for Cal State LA and he really tried to do his due diligence. He even called because it all sounded weird to him. Like yeah. it sounded weird that he was suddenly eligible and he called the state hotline and the hotline didn't really know what he was talking about and wasn't able to even kind of tell him, hey, this is what it's for, um, which I thought was really interesting. I actually heard from two other people who tried to reach out to the hotline and also weren't able to get any clarifying information. Well, so let me get this straight. Um, he called the place where he would get information or ask questions about this because something was just amiss in his head and he st- and they didn't know that this was not right. Yeah, he wow. said the woman on the phone seemed familiar that there were access codes, but didn't really know what they were for. And so actually this part's kind of wild. She mistakenly thought he was trying to book an appointment. So she asked him for his demographic information again. So he says, you know, I'm 31. I work in entertainment. And then she punches in the code he's given him and she goes, nope, you're eligible. That's, I think for, um, a, for a lot of people listening, Julie, that's, that's rough to hear because, I mean, people have been really struggling, some at least, to try and get some information or even get these vaccinations. Exactly. And I think there's been quite a, I mean, this, this going on is such a systemic failure and speaks so broadly to kind of what has gone wrong with our pandemic response. But I also want to be careful about vilifying the individuals Mm -hmm. too much because a lot of them really didn't know they were doing anything wrong. And the thing I was really struck with that that man told me is like, hey, I would have been more skeptical if I hadn't been alone in my apartment for a year, like desperately kind of trying to. And he also said he would have been more skeptical if the whole rollout hadn't been such a mess that it didn't, you know, it all kind of seemed all over the place. We're talking to Julia Wick, reporter for the LA Times. Uh, Julia, any idea on a, on a number or percentage of the vaccinations that went to people that shouldn't have got them? That we do not know. Um, we, a lot of people have contacted me saying they've canceled their appointments, like dozens of people. Um, I've also heard from a lot of people who did get vaccinated and feel really awful about it. Um, and then the bigger issue, of course, is that even regardless of how many numbers, what the numbers were, these were actual shots that should have been going to those who were in the hardest hit areas in both Oakland and L.A. These locations were literally chosen, the Coliseum and Cal State L.A., for their proximity to the hardest hit areas in these cities where people are dying in really large numbers. Um, and instead it, you know, ended up being through basically a lot of failures and a lack of safeguards 
and Julia, a lot sounds, of white people from other yeah. parts of the city driving in. Yeah. And it sounds like Governor Newsom heard of your reporting and promised changes. Uh, what has he said? And do you have a, any sense of what the changes might be to fix this? So that's a great question. Um, in a press conference yesterday morning, Governor Newsom said they were aware of the problems. They knew they were bad and they were going to be moving away from group codes to individual codes. We don't actually know what that means yet. Um, we weren't able to get more information. So, okay. And then he wow. said, you know, we're aware of the problem and we're working on fixing it, basically. Okay, so even he still doesn't know. I, I, I mean, this has got to be maddening for, for so many people, Julia, to hear this. Um, what's been the reaction among community leaders and, and faith leaders and, and whose residents or, or even congregants were intended to get access to some of these codes? I haven't spoken to any um, faith leaders yet. One person I spoke to who I was really moved um, by what he said was Dr. Don Garcia, who's the medical director at Clinica Romero, which serves a lot of the most hard hit Latino neighborhoods in LA. Um, And he really drew a direct line between what went wrong here and the digital divide that has kept so many of the people he serves from getting appointments in the first place before before these codes and really the, the digital divide that has also impacted so many of those people's kids in really disparate learning outcomes during distance distance learning. This kind of the two the two pandemics based on what your situation is and whether yeah. you can operate virtually. That's the best way to put it. There are two different pandemics, depending on on what you have available to you. That's uh, Julia Wick, Metro reporter for the L.A. Times, author of the Essential California Newsletter. Julia, thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. All right, moving on. There's an election happening right now for close to a million residents of West and South Los Angeles. They're voting on the replacement for Holly Mitchell, the former state uh, state senator who won a seat on the L.A. County's Board of Supervisors last year. KPCC's Libby Dankman is here to tell us more about the special election for California's 30th state Senate district. Uh, hello, Libby. Uh, give us uh, the basics. Uh, where is this district? Hi, A. Sure, it includes places like Culver City, Ladera Heights, Crenshaw, Florence, Century City, and much of downtown Los Angeles. Nearly two-thirds of voters in the district are registered Democrats, followed by just under a quarter who identify as no-party preference, while Republicans make up roughly 7% of SD30. And it's home to many historic Black neighborhoods and has the most Black voters of any Senate district in California, though Latinos make up the majority of the population. And let's just take a moment to think about representation, A, because the California legislature only has 40 senators. They each represent about 930,000 people, significantly more constituents than members of Congress, for example. So this is a really important seat. And Holly Mitchell had represented the district since 2014, but when she took her place on the L.A. County Board of Supervisors, Governor Newsom scheduled this special election for Tuesday, March 2nd, to fill the rest of Mitchell's term through 2022. And if nobody gets more than 50 percent of the vote in the primary, there will be a runoff with the top two candidates on May 4th. All right. So who's uh, running for this seat? Seven candidates qualified for consideration. The top fundraiser is 54th District Assembly member Sidney Camlogger, who was Holly Mitchell's district director and has the backing of Mitchell and many fellow Democratic officials, along with the party's endorsement. We need someone with the leadership 
and the experience who can also carry on the good work of Supervisor Holly Mitchell. Now, Culver City Vice Mayor Daniel Lee, also a Democrat, is giving her a progressive challenge. He's earned the support of environmental justice groups Sunrise Los Angeles and progressive organizers like Ground Game LA. I really focused on bringing single-payer health care to California and really working towards accelerating our response to the climate crisis. And Lee is part of a growing number of progressive candidates in Los Angeles who are running to the left of mainstream Democrats who have more establishment backing. They've banked a number of wins lately, like when Nithya Raman upset incumbent David Rue to join the L.A. City Council. Though in this case, the fundraising advantage for Comlogger and the support from her predecessor, Mitchell, those look tough to surmount. There are even a number of candidates already declaring their intention to run for Comlogger's 54th district assembly seat, if that gets you, gives you a sense of how the uh, political establishment thinks this is going to go. Yeah. Now, you talked to nearly all the candidates in this race. So what are some of the biggest issues they're focused on? Housing and homelessness always tops the list of voters' priorities in Los Angeles. And with so many candidates in the race, you have a wide range of solutions being proposed. There's a socialist candidate, Ernesto Alexander Huerta, who's just 19 years old and a community organizer in South L.A. He's calling for the state to seize empty apartment units and socialize housing. Meanwhile, Republican Joe Lasuzo is blasting local government for misspending taxpayer dollars. He's arguing that Triple H units are behind schedule and way too expensive and that lawmakers need to be more accountable for that money. Assemblywoman Sydney Kamlogger, the Democratic front runner, runner, talked about legislation she introduced to get uh, preventative medicine to homeless people and the need to improve case management for unhoused people to make sure that there is continuity of care between different organizations. And Councilman Daniel Lee talked about encouraging housing production, but also making sure that that doesn't lead to gentrification and displacement for black and brown residents in the 30th district. Now, Libby, uh, you, me and all the listeners are here at KPCC and LAS. So we know that this election is happening, but a lot of people might not realize it's going on. So how do residents in the district uh, cast a ballot? Yeah, it's an off year and kind of a funny time to be voting. Now, every registered voter in the 30th district has been mailed a ballot, according to the L.A. County Registrar's Office. Voters can fill that out at home and mail it back, no postage required, or they can drop it off using one of the county's official ballot drop boxes that opened earlier this month. If you have a problem with your ballot or you simply prefer to cast your ballot in person, many people do. Vote centers are open for this election right now. They're open 10 a.m. to 7 p.m. And if you want to find a ballot drop box location or where you can vote at a vote center, we've got all that info for you up on LAS.com. And finally, A, if you're new to the district, if folks have just moved in or they're not on the voter rolls for any reason, the deadline to register online to vote has already passed for the special election. But don't worry if you're in that boat. You can conditionally register to vote in person in California all the way up to and including Election Day, which again is this coming Tuesday, March 2nd. And your ballot will be counted once your registration information is validated by county election workers. All right, that's uh, KPECC's senior politics reporter, Libby Denkman. Libby, thanks a lot. Thanks, A. All right, I bet a lot of money that one of the subjects you talk about the most with your family and friends is net neutrality. I know exactly what you're thinking. 
I kind of know what net neutrality is, but I kind of forgot. No worries. We'll refresh your memory and tell you about a big ruling that will really spark your net neutrality conversations when Take Two continues. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and streaming on kpcc.org. I'm e. Martinez. California's landmark law that allows net neutrality finally has the green light to go into effect. That's what a federal judge ruled yesterday. What this means for you when you go online is this. Your Internet provider cannot pick and choose which services to slow down or put caps on. So think about all those shows and movies that you stream. Also, your provider cannot make certain websites go faster just because they have a business partnership with them. Those are just some examples of what this means to consumers. But let's talk more about this decision with Barbara Van Schievik, professor of law and uh, Stanford and director of the Center for Internet and Society. She was also a technical advisor on the development of California's laws. Um, all right, uh, Barbara, how else would you describe the impacts of this ruling to people who just use the Internet but don't uh, maybe think too hard about what comes onto the screen? This is really great news for all Californians. I mean, we're in the middle of the pandemic and everything we do is stuff we do online. You know, we go to school, we work, we see doctors, we see our friends. And while net neutrality sounds technical, at its heart, it's really a very simple idea. It ensures that we, the people who use the internet, get to decide what we do online and that the companies that we pay to get online, Comcast, AT&T, and Verizon, don't get to interfere with our choices. And, you know, to give you just one example, a a small internet service provider in who serves Idaho and Washington state just decided a couple of weeks ago that he was so upset with Twitter and Facebook uh, blocking, uh, deplatforming President Trump that he wanted to start blocking Facebook and Twitter wow. on its internet service. Wow. So that's one, yeah, that's one big example right there. Now, uh, experts nationally have been uh, closely eyeing this case because they see California's law as the, as the strongest on the books and maybe a guide for what the federal policy should be. Uh, why? Yeah, absolutely. So in, in 2018, the Federal Communications Commission de- decided to eliminate all the net neutrality protections that had been on the books. And in the process then, also gave up all of its other responsibilities over broadband. And so basically that they couldn't protect any of us online anymore. And so while a couple of states also did net neutrality laws, California's law was the only one that really restored all of the net neutrality protections that had been in place at the federal level. And for the first time, put them in the form of an actual law. And, and as a result, a lot of people have been saying that this should really be the blueprint for whatever happens next at the national level. Barbara, what were the arguments uh, against the law? Well, the ISPs made two arguments. One was basically, it doesn't really matter. You know, net neutrality has been gone for two years. Um, the Internet is still working. And so there is no need to do anything and allow California to start enforcing its law. And legally, they, they said, this is just not something that states can do. And they basically made two arguments. First, they said, in general, states just can't protect their, their citizens online, their residents. That's something that only the federal government can do. Mm-hmm. And that argument would have meant that states, it's not just about net neutrality, but states can regulate online payday lenders or do online privacy laws. But there are other um, argument was that 
when the FCC gave, eliminated net neutrality, they decided that um, there should be no net neutrality, that ICE phone and cable companies should be deregulated, and that California's decision to bring back net neutrality for Californians was conflicting with that decision and thereby illegal. Barbara, do we eventually as a country have to kind of decide what the internet is, what internet access is? Is it, is it like a public utility or is it something else? Do we have to eventually come to that moment? So, I mean, I do think in the middle of the pandemic, you don't wouldn't find anybody who wouldn't say that the internet is absolutely essential for us to work, play, and live today. And so I do think that means that we need proper oversight and and either the state or the federal government as an entity that protects us against um, what the uh, companies who pay to get online do when we try to get online. Can it be considered a public utility, like say water is? I mean, I... I'm I'm hesitant to use the term public utility because mm-hmm. for many people it evokes like ancient cumbersome re- regulation that stifles, you know, the activity of companies. But to the extent you mean proper oversight, you know, the rules that prohibit yeah. non-discrimination like net neutrality, absolutely. So in that sense, yes, this is a central, an essential technology that needs oversight and strong net neutrality protections. Well, one more thing, Barbara, listeners out there might not be happy with their current internet provider for, for whatever reason, a million reasons. What are the easy ways that they can vet that their own service is actually following this law and, and how to raise issues if it's not? So there are some tests you can run and right now I'm blanking on the software but if you if you google like net neutrality mm-hmm. software then you probably find it but most likely you will notice and and if you notice something that's going on so for example even today the wireless companies are limiting the bandwidth we can use for videos so they're slowing down online video for mobile customers um, you can now let the California Attorney General know, okay. and hopefully they can soon start enforcing the law. And I mean, more generally, what people hopefully should do is follow groups like Fight for the Future okay. or um, be, who, who work on this issue and will let you know when it's time to call your member of Congress or okay. send something to the FCC to make sure that this is not just something that happens in California right now, but yeah. sort of that we can ultimately bring back net neutrality at the federal level. That's Barbara Van Schievik, professor of law at Stanford and director of the Center for Internet and Society. Barbara, thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. All right, turning now back to schools. Yesterday, we spoke with Los Angeles School Board President Kelly Gomez about reopening Los Angeles Unified Campuses and what it would take to get students back into classrooms. Now we turn to another big issue. Last week, the school board voted to cut the school police budget by a third and use the money in other ways to hire counselors, social workers, and what's been called climate coaches to be on campus instead of officers. It's been on the table since last summer when protests over police violence hit a high point. So when we spoke on Tuesday, Gonez first explained why it took so long to vote on the plan. 
Well, first, I want to recognize and thank the students, advocates, and community members who really successfully pushed the board on this subject. As you pointed out, admittedly, the, the timeline was longer than I think any of us would have hoped um, since the board voted to reduce the budget for the school police back in June. But I think that the time was merited because it led to a really thoughtful process that included our Black students and our advocacy organizations, making sure that they had a real voice, not just in what cuts should be made, but also more importantly, how that $25 million that was cut from the school police should be reinvested in our Black students. And I think it was really important to have our students and community members at the table so that we're making these decisions with the voices of those who've been most impacted negatively by these policy decisions. So while it certainly took longer than I think anyone would have hoped, I think ultimately we ended up with a really solid plan for how we can better support our Black students utilizing that $25 million, but also more um, in support of these communities. Yeah, a part of the plan is to use that money to hire school counselors, social workers, restorative justice advisors, and what's being called uh, climate coaches to be on campus instead of police officers. Uh, what evidence or research did the board rely on to determine that this is the correct and right path? So the superintendent who brought this proposal before the board had a task force with experts both in law enforcement um, and criminal law and also um, in social justice for our Black students who helped develop this proposal. And I know that that task force relied on research, but also experiences in other major urban districts. I think Toronto in particular took a similar approach in terms of how they reimagined school safety, um, shifting dollars away from law enforcement and into more systems of care and counseling for students. Um, so that was a key example um, that we looked at in terms of how we wanted to proceed. You know, the term climate coaches, that's something I had not heard uh, quite yet. So what kind of work do you hope these people do? So what, what would their day-to-day look like? Um, what kind of service would they provide to the students? Well, I think the, the basis of safety for our students, first of all, is in safe and positive relationships with adults on campus, knowing that you have someone to turn to if you were in crisis. And so I think the first important thing is making sure that this safety coach is seen as someone that students can rely on and feel safe discussing issues with. The second is, you know, obviously they'll monitor the campus to make sure that activities are safe, students are safe while they are outside of their classrooms. But they are also going to be extensively trained in de-escalation techniques, implicit bias training. And we are also looking to primarily hire folks from the communities that they will serve. Um, because it's really important that these folks are culturally competent are people who can resonate with our students versus the current dynamic between uniformed law enforcement officers and high school students. And I know that not all schools will have these these climate coaches uh, and therapists on campus. So what will determine where these people will be placed in the system? Oh, we will actually, um, we voted on allocating climate coaches at every secondary school in the district. So they will okay. actually be right. present at every secondary school. The difference was, you know, we wanted to concentrate the 25 million specifically at schools with the highest number of black students in the district. The climate coaches for other district secondary schools were funded out of a, a different pot. The union representing the school police uh, slammed the plan last week and said uh, it will, quote, place our children and staff in harm's way. Uh, and some parents and staff have actually echoed that similar uh, sentiment. Uh, what, what is your response to that? We've heard quite clearly from Black students and uh, parents and educators who have come to the board repeatedly to to describe for us the ways in which 
having law enforcement present on campus causes real harm to them. And I think that the board has to act, even if those experiences aren't necessarily shared by others within the school system, to ensure that our Black students feel safe on campus. I just, I think it's unacceptable for us to perpetuate a policy that causes harm to students, particularly our Black students, given the history of anti-Black racism um, within our country, but also within public schools. And, you know, we have a plan for ensuring school safety. The climate coaches are one part of it, but school safety is everyone's responsibility on a campus. And so we're looking at it holistically. We do have plans and supports in place to ensure that our students are safe, but Um, You know, it's not acceptable to allow for our students to feel harm due to the decisions we've made, intentional or not. We're talking to L.A. School Board President Kelly Gomez. If there is, though, an issue on campus that requires a a police officer, uh, what, what is that plan? So the school police, while they are not physically located on campuses, they will be moving to a patrol model in our communities. And so if there is a serious emergency of some sort, our school police will still be very close by and will be able to respond immediately in the event of a crisis or emergency that requires their help. Otherwise, every school in the district is required to develop a safety plan with educators on campus, with students and with parent feedback. And so those individual plans articulate robust approaches to ensuring school safety. And further, I think that having the climate coach specifically trained to do this work um, will be an incredible asset to ensuring that everyone on campus knows how to best ensure student safety. And is there a, a plan for the officers who are part of the force that's being cut? Will they be considered for some of these new positions? Uh, how will that be determined? So I think we're still awaiting some clarity on whether officers will be laid off as a result of these decisions. We know that there's a number of vacancies um, that have occurred since June um, of folks who've left the school police and looked for other positions elsewhere. Um, So it was actually an open question that the board didn't yet get a response on as to whether we expect layoffs and if so, how many. Wondering what is the timeline for all of this? Uh, When will we see these cuts going into effect? And and when might these therapists and climate coaches uh, go to work on campuses? So the funds will be available um, and the personnel will be available to our schools starting at the beginning of next school year. And I know the board feels urgency, hopefully, that some of these positions can be in place in the summer um, because we are looking to provide robust summer services and instruction for students in light of the impacts of COVID on learning. So as soon as possible, I guess, is the timeline. But certainly by the start of next school year, we expect to have all of these supports in place um, and the the budget to be shifted um, from the school police to investing in our Black students. That's L.A. School Board President Kelly Gonez. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I know you've heard public service announcements on TV and radio, making announcements that, uh, you know, serve the public. And they're especially helpful these days when people are wondering about things such as testing or vaccinations. But why aren't social media sites required to run PSAs about COVID? I mean, imagine... If platforms such as Facebook use their massive reach to spread reliable, life-saving information. That's next on Take Two. Stay with us. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and kpcc.org. Abby Martinez. 
It's day two of Senate confirmation hearings for Attorney General, California Attorney General Javier Becerra. He's up for the job of Health and Human Services Secretary, and today he continued to answer tough questions about his eligibility. Becerra testified in front of the Senate Finance Committee, and during that hearing, California Senator Alex Padilla said that Becerra is being treated more harshly than other cabinet nominees in the last four years. Both Attorney General Becerra and I, throughout our careers, have too often been the only Latino in the room. Sadly, Javier and I are not unfamiliar with being held to different standards. The only Latino in the room. Hmm. Padilla continued that Becerra is uniquely qualified for the appointment and urged his colleagues to approve his confirmation. The Finance Committee is expected to send Becerra's nomination to the full Senate. Okay, so we all know by now that misinformation on social media about the coronavirus can spread almost faster than the virus itself. Right now, that's especially true of the vaccines. But instead of being a platform for just sharing opinions and theories, our next guest says social media companies should be forced into public service and help promote the safety of the vaccines, especially in minority communities. Connie Peshman is a professor of marketing at the UC Irvine School of Business, and she wrote the recent op-ed for Fast Company titled How Facebook Can Make Up for Disinformation and Help Everyone Get Vaccinated for COVID-19. And Professor Peshman, let's start with uh, what we know about people's attitudes to the vaccine. What, what are the most skeptical voices saying and where's it coming from? Well, we know that a vast majority of people are comfortable with getting the vaccine, but there's a significant minority that feels that it either is ineffective or dangerous. And particularly in minority communities, there is a lower uptake of the vaccine. We're not sure if it's because they're skeptical of it or concerned that it hasn't been tested on them or maybe they just don't have enough information. But either way, the disparity that we've seen with deaths and the disease itself is now reoccurring with the vaccine. Yeah, we've heard uh, from communities of color, Connie, that all of those things you mentioned are, are true for them in, in that there either isn't enough information, there isn't a trust in government when it comes to health issues for uh, communities of color. Uh, lots of reasons why there's uh, distrust out there. Um, why do you argue, though, that social media plays a key role in those messages, the ones we talked about getting amplified? Well, social media is what is spreading a lot of the information People are getting onto Facebook, they're conveying their concerns, and then the way Facebook works, they just keep hearing more of the same information over and over, because if they like someone who says they don't think the vaccine will work or the vaccine will be dangerous, they get more and more of the exact same message, and they start to think that that's a prevalent message. And it, re- it reinforces your fear. But I want to bring this back to your piece for Fast Company. Uh, you say that platforms, specifically Facebook, should step up and, and push targeted messages promoting the benefits of the vaccine. Why do you say this should be its responsibility? Well, we have a long history of uh, requiring that TV and radio, which are broadcast media, present public service announcements. But we don't have a history of that in social media. Google has something called Google Grants, where they will give small amounts of time or ads for nonprofits, but Facebook has nothing, and they're not currently obligated. But they are a 
perfect platform to reach people because currently they're the ones that are spreading the misinformation. What's in it for Facebook, say, to do this, to step up and and be this uh, kind of purveyor of this message? First of all, it would save lives, especially in communities of color. And secondly, it would also help them from a PR standpoint, because currently they have very negative PR, not only because of the coronavirus, but also because of the election and many other issues. In this case, they can step forward and do something they've never done before, which is help the community with the most important public health problem that we've ever faced. Now, Connie, at its root, though, this sounds like something that public health officials should be doing uh, by themselves. They should be taking this on, it seems like. I mean, can't they just buy these ads now without trying to get Facebook's buy-in on on this? They can't. It's incredibly expensive to use Facebook. Public health officials would never be able to afford Facebook. So Facebook has to come forward and provide the ads for free. Otherwise, it's not going to happen. We're talking to Connie Peshman, a professor of marketing at the UC Irvine School of Business. All right, Connie, so walk us through one of those example ads. What does it look like and how do you target specific demographics? The public health departments simply need to look at what zip codes are being underserved. They aren't getting the vaccine. They have low vaccine rates and or high instances of COVID and COVID deaths. We know this data are available. It's being reported in newspapers across the country. So all you do is tell Facebook, here are the zip codes I want to target. Please send people this message. And it'll be a tiny little message. It'll say something to the effect that, you know, if you're 65 or older, here's your vaccination center. Click on this to get an appointment. It's very simple. Facebook knows how to do it. And all public health people have to do is provide the list of zip codes in an Excel file. And it sounds, Connie, that this would help vulnerable communities without making it uh, like they're targeting some kind of racial demographic. Correct. It's just targeting zip codes objectively based on those who haven't been able to get the vaccine. So it's not ethnic profiling. Mm -hmm. It's zip code targeting, which we do for public health services on a daily basis. And what works is you just simply provide the message over and over. You don't have to change the message. And, you know, Connie, we've we've talked to people that work uh, in these communities and they've told us that uh, the number one issue with getting these people vaccinated is that they don't know how to access the information, that they have no idea in some cases how to find out where to get the vaccine. So a targeted ad like this could uh, be really, really useful. Now, uh, Connie, as a marketing expert, what does success look like to you coming out of this campaign? Success would be demonstrated by a disappearance of the current disparity between some zip codes that are getting the vaccine at a very high rate and other zip codes that are extremely low in terms of vaccination. That should not be happening. Connie, what have you heard from any tech companies or public health departments so far to your idea? I have not been able to reach Facebook. It's impossible to reach them. Wow. Hmm. We've tried to send messages, but there's no direct line to Facebook. What about a public health department? Has, has any public health department made contact with you? Not yet. As I said, it would take me 15 minutes to explain to them what to do or an hour at most. It's a very easy campaign to set up. All we need is people to pay attention and Facebook needs to come forward and provide the free ads. 
Ultimately, Connie, I mean, you're really tackling this idea of what social media should play in our lives. In general, they're just platforms that let the public say what they want to say, which has led to some good and some also bad outcomes. But why do you argue that from now on, they should be better at acting with more of the public's interest in, in mind? We have already required that broadcast networks, including radio and television, provide public service announcements. I think at this point, social media doesn't need any special protection. It should be treated like an important broadcast medium, and it should step forward and also provide public service announcements. Public health departments cannot afford to pay the costs, so they have to step forward and provide a service to the community. I believe it's their obligation to give back to the community. That's Connie Peshman, professor of marketing at the University of California, Irvine, Paul Marais School of Business. She studies the impact of advertising and social media on consumers and the effectiveness of public health ad campaigns. Connie, thank you very much. Thank you. I think I might have mentioned before the only way I'll be inside a movie theater anytime soon. Two masks on, a face shield, a cap with a bill pulled down low, a hoodie over it. And then everyone as far away from me as possible. That's about it. But movie theaters are starting to open up and I might get tempted. We'll find out how they're opening up when Take Two continues in about 60 seconds. Stay with us. Back now with more Take 2 on 89.3 KPCC. And you can also find us on Apple Podcasts. I'm e. Martinez. Movie theaters in New York City can reopen their doors starting next month. And amid the pandemic, more and more movie studios have started hiding their box office grosses. Plus, the group behind the Golden Globes is facing new scrutiny. For this and more, it's time to go on the lot. Stick your head out and yell. Want a chocolate? All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Joining me, as always, is my longtime friend, Rebecca Keegan, senior editor for film for The Hollywood Reporter. Hello, Rebecca. Hi. I remember last week you said we were friends. I were friends. It's official. <laughs> okay, it's perfect. radio official. All right, let's jump in. Uh, Hollywood Studios and Entertainment uh, Guilds have sent a letter to President Biden asking for pandemic assistance. Uh, Rebecca, what did the letter say about the pandemic's impact on the industry and what's being asked of the administration? Uh, well, the, the letter pointed out the roughly 465,000 film and TV jobs that have been put at risk by the COVID-19 pandemic. And the industry is asking for some specific things. I mean, the first and most obvious, they're noting the key to their recovery is getting the pandemic under control. And they're pledging to work with the White House to help do that. But they're also pointing out that the uh, certain issues have worsened for the industry during the pandemic, including illegal piracy. And they're asking Biden to advance a strong copyright policy that will crack down on piracy. They also want tax trade and insurance policies that will incentivize production in the U.S. And I think basically they don't want to slip through the cracks. They know this administration has an enormous task ahead of it, and they want their priorities to be considered at key places like the Commerce Department and the Justice Department. I got to say, Rebecca, outside of Hollywood and maybe Atlanta, um, I don't know if Hollywood's going to get much sympathy. Uh, you know, but, I know. Yeah, I, I think that I think that's I think that's something that they're aware of. And it's, it's tough to overcome at a time when virtually every industry is reeling and there is this massive health crisis going on. It's 
hard for this industry to hold its hand up and say, what about us? Nevertheless, 465,000 jobs is real jobs. Um, yeah. Now, amid uh, ongoing theater closures across the country, some uh, studios have started to hide their box office grosses. Uh, which studios are doing this and, and why? Well, most recently, Searchlight isn't sharing grosses for its Oscar contender, Nomadland, um, nor is A24 for its awards movie, Minari. Um, studios are saying they don't want to be unfairly judged for numbers that in a, quote, normal time would be considered weak. Do they? I mean, they know that everyone knows that this is going on right now, right? I mean, it's it's just it's shocking to me, Rebecca, that they would think that anyone would hold their numbers against them right now. <laughs> Well, I think part of the issue is these are when it comes to awards, these are movies that are competing against films on Netflix and Amazon where mm. there are no comparable uh, box office numbers. So it just becomes something that they feel can be held against them. But personally, I, as someone who covers the industry, it's a frustrating lack of transparency. Um, it was Netflix that started this. Uh, they do not repo- report box office numbers, just like we don't have independent you know, Nielsen data on their streaming numbers. Those statistics are useful, not just for, you know, cranky reporters, but also for <laughs> actors, directors, agents, and other people who work in the industry. You think uh, there's a chance it could continue after movie theaters uh, reopen, after everything goes back to somewhat normal? I hope not. I mean, there there does tend to be, um, when things start, when studios get an opportunity to change something because of the pandemic, oftentimes that becomes a permanent change. I hope that's not the case with box office. Now, speaking of the box office, uh, movie theaters in New York City have been given the green light to reopen starting uh, next month, March 5th. Uh, some restrictions are going to be in place, of course. Uh, New York is, is the country's second biggest movie-going market just behind us here in L.A. Uh, Rebecca, what could this mean for uh, Hollywood studios and their theatrical releases going forward. This is a huge boost. I mean, the reason studios are holding back so many of their biggest films is because the two largest markets in the country, as you say, New York and LA, have been closed, making it really difficult, if not impossible, to mount a major wide release. Um, We saw that with Warner Bros. attempt to launch Tenet in the fall. Domestically, that movie grossed $58 way less, obviously, than it would have if it had opened in a normal movie-going environment. Thank you, by the way, Warner Brothers, for releasing your grosses for Tenet. I know, right? Yeah, yeah, at the very least. (laughs) Shout out as we tell you how bad they were. Yeah, Rebecca, I think I told you a a while back uh, my plan for when I go back into a movie theater, two masks on, face shield, cap at the bill, pulled down low, a hoodie over that, and no one sitting near me. Uh, So what protocols will be in place? I'm a fun dude. So what kind of protocols (laughs) are going to be in place uh, when New York uh, go back to the theaters? Well, for one thing, they'll only be opening at 25% capacity. Um, masks will be required, as will assigned seating and advanced air filtration. LA next on this, or are we still uh, a ways away from that? Well, some counties in California are going to be able to reopen movie theaters soon, but here in LA, we're still in that most restrictive purple tier for the foreseeable future. And until we're out of there, no movie theaters here. All right. So now to the Golden Globes are happening this Sunday. A recent uh, LA Times investigation looked into the Hollywood Foreign Press Association. That's a group of 87 international journalists responsible for handing out the awards. Before we get into the allegations and the questions raised, uh, fill us in on that group. Who are they and what's the history? Well, they started in the in 1940s, a bunch of foreign correspondents banded together so they could have a better shot at getting interviews with the big movie stars of the era. 
In recent decades, the group has become largely about the Golden Globes. This is where they derive all their revenue and all their power in Hollywood. NBC pays $60 million a year for the broadcast rights to the Golden Globes. And even as other award shows have lost their ratings, the Globes have stayed pretty steady with an audience of about 18 million. And, and people make fun of the Globes Awards all the time because everyone's drunk, or at least almost drunk. I mean, that's kind of the fun of the Golden Globes. Now, the LA Times interviewed more than 50 people and looked at court filings and inter, internal financial documents. So what did they find out? Well, one of the many eyebrow-raising things the LA Times found out was that the group has no black members. Um, they also found out just how much members get paid to serve on committees at a nonprofit. There were some $2 million in payments that went out last year, according to the paper. There's also the issue of gifts and travel. Um, a lot of people were perplexed this year that the mediocre show Emily in Paris got a Golden Globe nomination. But when you learn then that 30 HFBA members flew to France and were put up at the Peninsula Hotel mm. in Paris as part of the promotion for that show, it makes a little bit more sense. Yikes. Um, so what's been the response? And how's the association tried to repair its image over the years? Because this isn't the first time this happened. Now, it feels like every five or 10 years, a news organization does a pretty damning story on the HFPA, just like the most recent LA Times one. And they have this sort of cockroach-like ability to live on. Um, a few years ago, after criticism bubbled up, the HFPA started spending some of their NBC money on charitable causes like education and film preservation. And they instituted new rules around gifts. Um, we'll see what their response will be this time. I, I almost wish that it was happening in person like normal, just to see and hear what everyone would be saying around those dinner tables <laughs> with, mm -hmm. with all the wine flowing and everything. Can you imagine? Because it, it is. It's happening this Sunday. So what perfect timing for all these questions to be uh, raised. That's Rebecca Keegan, senior film editor at The Hollywood Reporter. Rebecca, as always, thanks a lot. Thanks, Jay. All right, if you missed any part of Take Two today, wow, did you miss a great show or did you? Wow, you just got to go wherever you find your podcast because there we will be waiting to be heard by you. You can also find us on social media. We're on Twitter at Take Two. That's at Take Two. I'm there as well, at A Martinez LA, at A Martinez LA. And that's good for Twitter and Instagram for your social media convenience. Thanks for listening. Thanks for trusting us with your time. Take Two is back tomorrow at 2. Marketplace is coming up next.